Okay, uh, Proverbs 11. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. Proverbs 16. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. When a man's way pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 21. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Okay. Oh man, here we go. Okay. exists to serve um, you all, the campus, and again, you all, wherever you are, whoever you are, we really mean that. We really want RUF, our goal for RUF is to be a place uh, that can welcome any kind of person from any personal background, from any scene on campus, um, whether, and that really includes even where you are with Jesus and Christianity. So some of you might call yourself convinced or unconvinced, some of you might call yourselves believers or spiritual skeptics, or maybe you just feel totally uncomfortable with all of those and say none of the above, or somewhere in between, we're really glad you're here, and we're really glad you can make it with us uh, to hang out. So again, thanks for coming, especially if you're new, if this is your first time, thanks a lot. Um, thanks for taking the time and the risk uh, to come out and check us out. Okay, so this semester, in large group, we've been looking at the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs together. We kind of uh, with the understanding that both of these books together uh, teach us how to process life. They teach us how to process our lives. They teach us how to handle our emotions, how to make decisions, how to treat relationships, and then ultimately how to live more fully, more humanly, more humanely here and now. And so we've been looking at this series for a while now, and here's my abbreviated title. I won't give you the subtitle this time as much. Um, it's basically sorting life. They're about sorting life. And the Psalms teach us to sort life or process life by praying our emotions to God. And the Proverbs teach us to sort our lives by applying God's wisdom to ourselves, to our decisions, and our relationships. And we're in week two of our second mini-series. We started Proverbs last week, 
And we're going to keep moving through the book of Proverbs and learning what wisdom is, how to get wisdom, how do we apply wisdom, how does wisdom help us with the big issues in our lives. Issues like relationships, issues like words, alcohol, food, character, money, sex, work, and tonight, decision-making, decisions. Okay, so we're continuing our study of Proverbs by exploring how these chapters behind me, chapters 11, 16, and 21, with a few different verses in them, help us to process and apply this thing called wisdom to our decisions. That's where we're going, that's what we're up to. But before we connect the two together, God's wisdom, with our everyday decision making, would you pray with me and for me? Father, um, I'm thankful um, that you're here among us. Um, I'm thankful that you care more about me talking than I do, which is hard to believe. Um, I pray that you would be with all of our ears to hear your words. You'd be with all of our hearts, uh, wherever we are, tattered and bruised, young and excited, uh, doubtful, hopeful, somewhere in between. I pray that you'd meet us where we are and that you would help us to see you, Jesus, more believable, more beautiful, that you would help us to encounter you, Christ, even in the midst of what feels like riddles. And I pray that you would not let us leave this room until uh, we've encountered you and you've moved us. Whether it's a small way or a big way, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, two years ago, June 13, 2015, <coughs> Uh, the day after my birthday, if anyone wants to know. Um, I found myself on a plane to Newark, New Jersey. Okay, Newark, New Jersey. Anyone from New Jersey? Okay, we've got a single New Jerseyan. Um, so I know there's a lot of the people at Davidson from New Jersey, so picture yourself there. I woke very early in the morning, the day after my birthday, and I, showed, I went to this high school, close high school friend's wedding. Okay, so we hadn't connected very much recently, but I thought this was worth it. I'm going to go. The plane arrived to Newark's airport. I grabbed my carry-on luggage, got down a bunch of different escalator ramps, um, looked at my watch, plenty of time to make the afternoon wedding. And then I arrived at a true scary, scary and overwhelming place, the airport's train station. I had never been there before, and honestly, I really expected a pretty straightforward experience, like any traveler. Okay, a clear map, a clear way to buy the appropriate ticket, a clearly marked train or two, maybe some helpful people working. Uh, but I greatly underestimated the New Jersey transit system. <laughs> I looked for a clear map, and I found a thick, fold-out, black-and-white brochure. It was filled with multiple maps and multiple timetables. So I swallowed, and I bravely bought a ticket, because all I needed to know was my destination. And then my boldness buckled, however, when I followed my best guess to the signs and landed on a platform, a train platform that was almost nearly empty. Okay, there was no other, the only people there with me looked like they spent the night there, or they were looking straight through me at a confused, uh, woeful tourist. Um, so I desperately scanned for help, for some advice, and finally my, my eyes landed on a discouraged New Jersey transit worker. <laughs> And um, I, I, I waved him down. I told him my destination, Princeton. And he half nodded. He half shook his head at the same time. <laughs> and I went, 
is this platform for Princeton he went? <laughs> is that a yes or a no? Then he carelessly threw his arm behind him towards all of the airport's train tracks and platforms. So I was not really sure what that meant. So I took that as like, yes, I'm at the right place. And then he had gestured towards this platform being the closest. And by the way, I was right on that guess, which was a miracle. But then the hardest decision became before me. There was more than one train that used the same track. I was pretty sure about the line of my train to Princeton, but I was forced to wait and to wait. And I kept looking at the schedule, or like what I thought was one of the many schedules, and kept thinking, this is extremely late. Uh, but then finally, a train comes screeching around the corner and lands on our platform and opens its doors. At first, I was convinced, wrong color train, not my line to Princeton. Um, but then I waited longer than usual, started second guessing myself. I saw all these people rushing in. Then I kind of like peeked into the interior. Oh, nice plush seats next to a window facing forward. Um, boy, a whole like cubby to myself. And then I held my ground, no Sid, no, this isn't right, you need to wait. But then I heard the warning bells and the announcements, you know, the door's closing. I lost my cool completely. <laughs> I grabbed my bags and I long jumped into the train and the doors closed quickly behind me. Okay. Since I'm not from New Jersey, it did, I didn't realize that I was on the wrong train for almost an hour. I was people watching, <coughs> reading this book, half sleeping, when I finally realized I was headed towards Jersey Shore and not Princeton. And note now, there's some small differences between Jersey Shore and Princeton, um, like you know maybe the posh Nassau Club on the one hand and this and the spray tan Gold's Gym on the other. But Jeff's the more important difference was that Jeff's wedding was miles and miles and miles away from where I was, and so I did the only thing that a reasonable human being would do. I completely panicked. Um, sometimes I fought, sometimes I froze, sometimes I fled. It was sad. Um, but eventually, I, re I reversed my course, got back in some trains, kind of furiously hoping to make the wedding. It was Saturday afternoon, though, and I landed at this kind of juncture station, the infamous Rawway station. Okay, Rawway, which one train conductor kindly called wrong, wrong way station. Rawway station. Thanks for that. Um, I ate my vending machine lunch, and then I like looked out on the horizon, and all I could see like were kind of falling down buildings. Um, piles of retreading tires and scrap metal melting in the sun. And I looked at my watch and I completely missed my best friend from high school's wedding. And my only hope was to make it to the reception. And for me, this story kind of calls to mind all of the pressures of making a big decision. The fear of missing out on the best of life, right? The fear of failure, getting left behind. And life oftentimes feels like the Newark train station, doesn't it? I mean, well-meaning life plans are complicated. They're thick, they're fold out, they're full of charts and maps we sometimes don't understand. Well-meaning advice can feel like a simultaneous yes and no. It can feel like a sloppy arm wave for directions. And even if we think we know what to do and where to go, the waiting can feel like forever. And it's hard not to step on the wrong train going the wrong direction because, frankly, it's right there and the doors are closing. And in many ways, college actually forces you onto that train station platform regularly, doesn't it? 
you're constantly forced to make these big decisions all of the time. Okay? You're constantly having to decide what do I major in? Who do I room with? What friends should I spend more time with? What internships, what jobs do I apply to? And of course, should I force that DTR? Or should I say yes to that DTR and go on a date anyway with that guy or girl? And like, look, as we discussed last week, these questions don't lead to right or wrong answers. These questions are like decisions, and they're all about the gray areas of life, right? We're looking at the gray areas of life, and we need wisdom. And the book of Proverbs defines wisdom as the art of skillful living or the skill of artful living, okay? And I like Keller's quote. His, the writer and pastor Tim Keller has a good way of putting it. He says, wisdom is seeing how things really work, seeing how things really are, and seeing how, what to do about it. That is knowing what to do, knowing when to do it, knowing how to do it, and knowing why to do it. That's wisdom in a nutshell. Okay? <coughs> and so Proverbs chapters 11, 16, and 21 helpfully apply this wisdom into the arena of decision making. And while these chapters are not like a plug and chug instruction manual for your very next decision, I'm sorry, already spoiler alert, but they do address our hearts and they speak comfort over our fears. They speak comfort into the decision-making process. So among our themes, chapters 11, 16, and 21 of Proverbs describe how wisdom applies to our decisions. And as noted in our Proverbs handout outline in the 50 thing, I've got subpoints today. I'm just really excited about this. Um, you can see the following. First, what prevents us from making good decisions? Fears, our fears. What kind of fears? Our fear of being missed, our fear of missing out, and our fear of missing it, in quotation marks, whatever it is. Okay? We see this in Proverbs 16, verses 1 through 3, verse 9, and verse 25, and Proverbs 21, verses 5 and 31. Okay? So a smattering of Proverbs, in other words. Okay? Second, we see a process of how to make a good decision, the process of good decision-making, which you could summarize as our character our character, the way to develop decision-making, and the way to take that wisdom that we develop and actually use it and apply it to the decisions we have to make. Does that kind of make sense? Are we tracking with that subpoint A and B? Okay, you see this in Proverbs 11, verses 3 and 14, Proverbs 16, verses 7 through 8 and 20, and Proverbs 21, verse 5. So we're going to begin with Proverbs chapter 16 and 21, and the fears that prevent good decision-making. That's where we're tracking. And I'm going to repeat the Proverbs, so if you're like nervous that I'm just going to be like citing random verses the whole night, please calm your fears. There's enough to be afraid of it already. Okay, so often in the heat of a decision or in its aftermath, okay, whether it like went well for you, you're happy, you feel praised, or it went bad for you, you missed the train, say, and the whole wedding for that matter, okay, whatever the situation, in those moments, it can really oftentimes feel like God doesn't exist. Or if God exists, he feels very hands-off in the decision-making process a lot of times for most of us. Okay? And for someone who identifies as a Christian, this can be extremely frustrating. And for the person who identifies as agnostic or atheist, this can be either frustrating or just feel normal. And regardless of whether we kind of initially feel worked up or just plain apathetic over God's seeming absence, eventually living without God in the details living without God directing the details, 
that puts a ton of pressure on our lives. Why? Because this action or non-action, that word or that non-word, that silence, no matter how small, actually alters the next moment and the next moment and the moment after that and the moment after that and the moment after that. And it builds and it builds until I am somewhere I like or dislike, until I am someone I like or dislike. Getting missed by God's attention is a lot of pressure. My existence, my choices alone determine my essence or my life if God feels absent. If God is absent. Okay? But Proverbs chapter 16 and 21 actually step into this existential pressure cooker, maybe the best line of the sermon, what I'm calling the fear of being missed. Okay? And Proverbs 16 and 21 tell us that God is actually silently but constantly working his plan out for our lives through our words. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 1. God is at work. He has a specific plan, a specific will for the details of our lives, down to our very hairs. And we see this through our actions. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Proverbs 16. Verse 3. Finally, God is shaping the course of our lives at a small step level and a grand battle level. Okay? The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That's Proverbs 16, 9. And the horse is made ready for battle, the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Proverbs 21, verse 31. Are we tracking with all this? What is all this saying? There is something blending going on, a biblical blending of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And I don't have the time or arguably the ability to answer any of those questions going on there. But I'm going to just point out a few important things going on. To make this simpler, just look at Proverbs 16, verse 3 with me. That's what we're going to look at. When we first read this, it can seem like God is just rubber stamping all of our plans. Commit your plans to the Lord, and your work will be established. Whoa, 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 actually says the opposite. It doesn't say commit your plans to the Lord, and your work will be established. It says the opposite. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. This means that God can and does limit the effectiveness of even the most thorough planning. He can intervene. But also notice, unless we make career plans... Unless we do the resume or the cover letter work, God will not establish these efforts. Simply put, you won't get a job by literally doing nothing. Okay? That is, your plans and your work are necessary. Without these, God won't affect change. So just because it doesn't feel like God is working and we're told he works mysteriously, does this mean that Shakespeare's Macbeth is correct? Is life but a walking shadow? A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, then is heard no more, is life a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing? Maybe. Or is Shakespeare's Hamlet more correct when he says to Horatio, our indiscretion sometimes serves us well when our deep plots do Paul, and that should teach us there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. There's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them how we will. That is, for the Christian, 
there's a God in heaven who's always guiding us in the right direction, however often we screw up. That, by the way, is a paraphrase from No Fear Shakespeare. Thank you. Those of you familiar with that online tool, I was like, what's that mean? And it pops up in the right-hand column. Um, so there's a God in heaven who's always guiding us in the right direction, however often we screw up. But seriously, listen to the way that Paul puts the same truth in the letter to the Romans. Okay, same idea. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. Same idea. Same idea as there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. Okay. And really, Shakespeare and Paul are leading us to the heart of our second fear that prevents us from making good decisions. The fear of missing out. The fear of missing out. Okay, think again of me on the New Jersey um, Newark train station platform. The reason I bolted into the wrong train, going the wrong direction, was because I was too scared to be I feared that missing the train that would take me to Princeton and Jeff's wedding. That was my biggest fear. But of course, by boarding the wrong train, I actually missed the Princeton station in the wedding. Uh, the irony, okay? The pitfalls of this kind of haste is actually underlined by the second half of Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5. The first half says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But the second half says, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. That is, making a fear-based, hasty decision often has consequences, right? In my case, the consequence was missing a close high school friend's wedding. We're kind of tracking with this logic. So, here's another point. Life also isn't like Gwyneth Paltrow's movie, Sliding Doors. How, how many of you were thinking that already when I was talking about the train station missing trains? Maybe that's dated. Okay, anyway, it's a movie about two alternate universes. One of Paltrow misses the train, and all of a sudden something, and it follows her life as if she had made the train, and it follows her life um, as if she missed the train. Two different alternate realities. Okay, so again, using my analogy that missing the train is a bad decision, there's two alternate universes, right? Is this true? Is it true that there's one potential reality or actual reality that if I made the train, I'm headed to Jeff's wedding, and simultaneously there's another reality that I didn't make the train, and so therefore I didn't make the money. Like, did I miss out on an actual reality? A potential reality? Is everyone just totally philosophically confused? <laughs> I, I want to show you with this. These are not my words. The words of James Petty. The Bible teaches that God does have one specific plan for your life, and the events and the choices of your life irresistibly work that plan in every detail. Okay? One cannot flunk out of God's plan. It accounts for all of your mistakes, all your blindness, and all your sins in advance. Because the work of Christ, you are not on a permanent plan B, plan C, or plan Z. In Christ, there's only one plan for your life, plan A. We tracking with that? So there's no sliding doors moment. But many people fear missing this plan. This God's will, what I'm calling quotation marks, it. What's the sphere of missing it? And really this comes down to God's will being some sort of like secret, hidden passageway. Like only the best Christians will get the forever job with the forever home in the forever suburban cul-de-sac. <laughs> okay? 
as if you actually have to live your life like a forensic detective on CSI in order to meet and marry the one. Otherwise, you're done. You might be marry number two or three. Look, but what if actually God isn't like that? What if God is not like sneaky? What if he's not cruel? What if he's not withholding like that? As if, like, it's just think about what we're painting God to be like. He's like this impossible to please God. Or like this relentless magician who never reveals his tricks. Or God's some sort of a criminal mastermind, like Moriarty to Sherlock Holmes or something like that, right? In the same chapters of Proverbs that describe how God accomplishes his will for our lives, right? Proverbs 16, we also read this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Verse 25. And really what this means is your perception is important, my perception is important, but it's oftentimes different than reality. Sometimes it may feel like decision-making. It's this big scavenger hunt. But those methods and those strategies can actually harm and cause bad decision-making. Okay? Let me give you some instances of what I've heard in the Christian world, subculture. Just to kind of talk about it, let me give you the pros and the cons. Okay, mostly cons. Okay. For instance, many well-painting people think that God uses signs to tell us what to do. So we ask God, where should I move after I graduate? Or should I transfer? And then we stand at Rich Circle and we count license plates. <laughs> if more cars with North Carolina license plates pass by in the next 15 minutes than out-of-state license plates or Florida or New York or wherever you're thinking about moving, then God is telling you to stay put to stay in Charlotte or to stay at Davidson. By the way, that's called divination. Okay? Divination. And not only does that put the Lord to the test, not a good idea, biblically, it's also not a biblical practice. Okay, it's the same exact practice that Rhymeless and Remus used standing on a hill several thousand years ago to decide who gets to name the city of Rome. Okay, Rhymeless and Remus have a contest. Whoever sees more birds and one patch of sky over a period of time gets to choose who names the city. Guess who won? Not Remus, although it's called Reem. Okay? <laughs> Romulus. It's called Rome. Okay, that is not a biblical practice. Okay? Did you see that? Okay, so no signs. Another common practice that's trying to out-trick a tricky god is what I call lucky dipping or lucky flipping. Okay, we ask God a question. Should I merge Outlook calendars with Sam and officially go on dates? Officially being an item, okay? And like an elementary school origami fortune teller, right? You randomly open the Bible and you point down and you look for an answer. And more often than not, it says something like, Esau was a hairy man. And you say to yourself, well, Sam does have a beard. Yes? But then you say to yourself, second time's a charm, and you flip through again. Judas hanged himself. Wait, wait! And you keep going until you find a yes or no answer you're looking for. Okay? And aside from the problem of like the power of suggestion here, the Bible, even Proverbs, actually hold together as literary units. That's why we're trying to go thematically through chapters here. Okay, maybe it doesn't feel like that, but it's true. And there's they have, you have to promote a context. And so lucky dipping is not only unhelpful, it's unbiblical in the way it's revealed. Okay? And the final common practice in the Christian subculture to get clarity on a big decision is to wait till we hear directly from God about it. We'll pray about breaking off a relationship, right? Like a dating relationship. 
And then we're awake to hear from God in any manner, from audible voice to peaceful, easy, fuzzy feeling. Okay? And oftentimes, this very subjective experience becomes the ultimate trump card in a conversation. Right? You, you sit down with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you say, I, I personally would love to stay with you. But God has told me, semi-clearly, no. What is your boyfriend or girlfriend supposed to say to that? Or I've seen this to myself or friends or family members or students. We all take this decision out of the realm of getting advice and interpreting scripture together by saying things like, I feel a peace about buying a new MacBook Pro. <laughs> or God told me to do that. It was okay to do that. Sorry if you don't agree. You gotta take that up with the big man. But look, not only is there like potential abuse here, but there's also the problem that like many good, loving decisions don't give you that peaceful, fuzzy, easy feeling in life, right? Right? Forgiving an absent parent, sharing your story at Take Back the Night, giving away your money. These things feel confusing and hard. They don't feel peaceful and easy, but doesn't mean they're less important. And as I said, the biggest, as I said earlier, the biggest problem with this fear of missing God's will, as if like the finish line were the finish line of American Ninja Warrior or something, is this giant obstacle course that you have to theologically navigate. The biggest problem with this fear is that at the end of the day, it's assuming that God's kind of a jerk, right? If God loves us, if we are his precious little children in whom he delights and for whom God moves heaven and earth to give bread, not a stone, a fish, not a serpent, why would God hide decisions? Why would he hide the answers that we need? Why would he do that? To quote Paul in his letter to the Romans again, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him, give us all things. Okay? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, with him, give us all things? <laughs> the cross of Jesus is our guarantee that God's going to give us what we need to make good decisions. And he's going to even give us what we need when we make bad decisions. He's going to use our bad decisions even. So, our fearful assumptions about decision-making not only betray what we think about God and all of our fears there, but they also betray what we really deeply want. What do we deep, deeply want? We want God to make our decisions for us. Okay? We want God to tell us what to do. We want to be spoon-fed step-by-step rules. But what does God do? He gives us freedom instead. Freedom is scary, and it makes us take responsibility seriously, and that's really, really hard. But imagine if the Bible was just one big expansion pack edition of rules and regulations for every human situation, which many people think it is, but it's not even close. Okay, even if the most law-filled, it's not that way. Okay? If it was like that, God would be babying us. There's no other way to say it. He would be treating us like babies. Let me give you the sample. Okay? Imagine William, my six-year-old son, grown up. He's 19 years old. Somehow, by a miracle, he gets into Davidson College. Okay. And he calls me. He calls me. And he says, Dad, I'm standing at the curb of Belt Lot. I've got a spot on the row of champions. But I need you to come here because I can't get to my car. I need you to hold my hand and walk me to my car because I can't cross the street by myself. 
That's appropriate for a six-year-old, not so appropriate for a 19-year-old. That's what we're doing when we ask God for these step-by-step instructions. It's a lack of maturity. And this is why God doesn't just want to give us a fish. This is why he wants to teach us to fish. Okay? This is why he doesn't want to give us the answers. He wants us to develop within us the process whereby we can actually make good decisions, even among difficult choices, anytime we want to. And this looks like developing wisdom within us and a loose method to make a decision. And by the way, we're firmly in point two at this point. Okay, if you're wondering if I was ever going to finish. Okay, Proverbs verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 3, begins to pitch this idea, God's vision of making good decisions from hearts and minds that are more like his. He's forming hearts and minds more like his so that we're good decision makers. Okay? Listen to the way that Proverbs 11, verse 3 puts it. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. That is a total, holistic commitment to God actually leads us in tough decision-making. We'll look at Proverbs 16, verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Look, regularly loving God and loving other people ordinarily, not all the time, ordinarily helps us and heals our relationships, even with the most difficult to love people. But look, God defined this desire for us to cultivate heart-like virtues, like integrity and loving kindness, helps us actually deal with all of this freedom that we have, all of this wise gray area of freedom, with more humility, more boldness, and of course, more wisdom. So you're all wondering, what does this look like in practice? How do I actually make a decision? Some of you are saying, banging on the door of my heart and saying, look, I need you to solve my career problems as a second semester senior. Or look, I don't know what to major in this second semester sophomore and I'm getting the emails already, okay? Let me talk about what it looks like in practice with a hard decision. And again, I'm gonna give you a rough working model, a general order of operations, of how to make a good decision. And to make this even more practicable, I'm actually just gonna give you, we're deciding between two jobs, two internships, two grad schools, okay? Think about it that way. Right, here's how you do it, or roughly, okay? And this isn't in sequential order. One thing you need is you need to be already steeped in the wise words God's given us. We need to be reading and meditating and practicing the Bible and its general principles because, like, listen to the way that Proverbs 16:20 puts it. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. So sometimes, usually, you're not going to do a job that's illegal. It's not going to be between, like, the mafia and accounting. You know, like, that's not going to be your choice. So the question becomes, like, is this job going against biblical commandments? Am I doing something that might be questionable? Am I going to do work that's not like legally stealing, but takes advantage of people's finances by repackaging loans and making them, you know, loan out houses they can't afford, say, realistically? Okay, a lot of people did that. Okay, number two, use research and common sense to gather your intel, your information about both the opportunities you're looking at, okay? So this is, comes from the first half of Proverbs, chapter 21, verse 5. Describes the importance of doing due diligence, the importance of research. Okay? 
The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. Ask yourself basic circumstantial questions. Like, am I rushing this move? Am I rushing this move? What will my quality of life be like in that city? What will my quality of life be like in that company? What will my quality of life be like in that university? But then ask deeper questions about the opportunities. What does the world need me to do more? What does the world need more? Which set of problems do I actually care about tackling more? And of course, what communities, what communities, friends, or family, or church, what communities can I serve outside of work? Something that we rarely put into the mixer when we think about where to go. Number three, pray for wisdom about the decision. Pray to God for wisdom. Ask God which opportunity will honor God more. Which opportunity will be better or less harmful for other people that I know or don't know? Ask God for self-knowledge. What do I actually like doing more? Which job? Which kind of school would I enjoy more? Which job or potential career am I actually good at? Best at? And then four, this goes along with number three, seek counsel from wiser people. Seek counsel from people who are more experienced at life. They've made more mistakes. They've had more successes. Okay? There's also this idea, too, that there's people who love others and love you well. You might want to ask them. Okay? Proverbs 11:14 makes this case about asking for a lot of advice. Have several counselors. Here's how Proverbs 11:14 says it. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. With an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Ask older and wiser people about the research you've done on your environment if you're going to. Ask older and wiser people about what they think you like doing. Ask older and wiser people what they think you're good at, if they know you well enough to do that. Five, after you've prayed, consulted scripture, gathered information about jobs and yourself, ask some wise souls about decisions, I want you to do the most spiritual thing you can possibly do at that moment. I want you to make an actual decision. Make an actual decision. Go ahead and choose one school or the other. Go ahead and pick to live in Charlotte or to see DC or to see and not Charlotte. Oftentimes this is exactly what it means to listen to the Holy Spirit. Is to make a decision based on what's around you based on these protocols. Look, at the end of the day, we can make a decision and we can trust God with the results, even if it's a bad decision, because God took a public blood oath on a cross that says this, Jesus will right our wrongs. Jesus will heal our harms. Jesus will move into the darkest places and the deepest fears and the insecurities that you can't even name. And we can trust God with the future because he is so faithful with the present. Here's what all these Proverbs assure us of. This fact. You are right now in the exact place you're supposed to be. There's no alternative universe that you're supposed to be in where you meet the guy and they want to tell him to you. Look, yes, I missed my friend Jeff's <coughs> wedding. But I didn't miss the reception, which is a plus. I got to spend time with my high school friends, 
Um, I got to celebrate my good friend Jeff and his bride. But no, I can't miss Jesus. I cannot miss Jesus, no matter what I choose. God, Jesus, finds me out and he draws me out. When I'm so scared, I want to fight him. When I'm so afraid, all I can do is hide. When I feel so much pressure from the decision-making that I want to freeze up and do nothing at all. There Jesus is, silently and patiently working in me and working for me. That's the promise of these verses. That's the promise of decision-making. So love God, to quote Augustine, love God and do what you want. Love God and do what you want. Don't miss either of those. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your words to us in Proverbs. Thank you for uh, this opportunity to delve into things that are deep and mighty and mysterious. Um, thank you for some wisdom that we can bring from it. I pray that you would be with people making good decisions, people feeling like they've missed the boat, they've missed the train. I pray that you would be with all of us as we sort through what it means to be loved. I pray that those uh, 